Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Nine Network Head of Content Production and Development, Adrian Swift, about the broadcaster's programming and international partnership strategy, as well as a string of leading Australian distributors, producers and actors about the nation's rapidly evolving TV landscape. All as part of C21's Content Australia On Demand. C21's Content Australia On Demand wrapped recently with a series of panel discussions and one-on-one interviews exploring how the nation's television business is evolving in a period of unprecedented change. Adrian Swift, Head of Content Production and Development at Nine Network, spoke with Don Groves about the broadcaster's programming strategy, its desire to find new tentpole formats that can be stripped at 7.30 in the evenings, his willingness to collaborate with overseas partners and approach to engaging with audiences across multiple platforms. Welcome, Adrian. Hello, John. How are you? Just fine, thank you. So despite the challenges of declining audiences and advertising revenues facing free-to-air broadcasters across the world, Nine's performing very strongly. For the first 26 weeks of this year, Nine was number one in total people and all key demographics with a 4.5 share point lead over the seven network in 25 to 54s. So what have been the key pillars of this programming strategy? Uh, look, you know, getting programs that, that appeal to audiences on multiple platforms, I think, Don. It's not, it's not massively complicated. The, the metrics are changing because the audience is moving uh, so obviously, like every other market in the world, we're no longer counting audiences purely on overnights. Uh, I guess where we stand very much is around creating brands that we know will work across platforms. So, you know, we have some brands. Uh, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, things like uh, Married at First Sight is a massive cross, cross-platform hit. Whereas we always found with programs like The Voice, much harder to make work beyond the, the uh, broadcast television. Uh, you know, we find the same with Love Island, one of the great, great successes for us on our AVOD platform. But when we're broadcasting the show, uh, it's one of our, it's one of our um, uh, most massively consumed catch-up shows. So, you know, it works on a number of levels. Um, and I think, I think at the core of what we're doing is we're commissioning a, for our core audience, which is female 2554, and we're very specifically commissioning to work across all platforms. So Lego Masters and Celebrity Apprentice, are they working across all those platforms? Yeah. Lego, Lego Masters particularly because it appeals to kids. Uh, and and um, uh, Celebrity Apprentice skews a little bit older, but but it's such an interesting show and works so well in the schedule that, that while it doesn't have the massive appeal that some of the others do it still works really really well in catch up we're getting you know the, the reality for all broadcasters is uh you know you're now bucketing your audience into overnights people who are watching via ip live people who are watching via catch up within 12 hours of broadcast and then your pvrs your plus sevens and your plus 14s um uh so you know the the way we define a program success varies really fundamentally by program as much as anything else. But for us, it's got to work everywhere. Married at First Sight is a great example, I think, of how you unearth shows. You bought the format from Red Arrow International and then commissioned it from Endemol Shine. We, we we picked up the format, uh, I remember, and we were we were very excited about it. And the first three series we made of the show uh, was very much in uh, uh, along the lines of the original Snowman format, which was once a week, one hour, very observational documentary, uh, and it and it, it went gangbusters for us. You know, I think we it went out at yes eight thirty quarter to nine, um, and it was a really successful show. But for various programming reasons, we moved it to seven thirty. Uh, up against one of our our competitors' big strips. And we saw very quickly that the show actually started to take a lot of the younger female audience uh, in that time slot. And that's when we made the decision to fundamentally change the show. And we sat down with um, with Endemol Shine uh, and we basically turned the show much more into a multi-night show with many more of the components of a reality show and it's subsequently become the biggest show in the country by a considerable margin. The UK version has been a lockdown hit on the E4, and the Australian production has been sold to multiple territories, including A&E Networks Asia. 
Uh, I gather you get a benefit from the uh, program sales and uh, format deals. We do. We do get a benefit. Um, yes, we do. And that's, look, we're, you know, I, I, I think we're all of us here uh, from Tara McWilliams, who's the executive producer for Endo Shine and, and um, yeah, all the guys at ESA and all of us at Nine. I mean, we're, we're immensely thrilled at the, the extent to which the show's travelled. And, you know, the, the money's obviously a bonus, but... You know, to take a show like that and fundamentally re-engineer it, then have it succeed very widely. And also the UK version that they're mounting this year is much closer to our version of the show than the original. I mean, you know, as content creators, that's always a pleasure. Yeah. For international producers who'd like to work with Nine, can they come to you directly or would you prefer they go via an established Australian producer? No, I think if they're, if they're established producers in their own market, we're always happy to have a conversation. You know, the reality is for us is, you know, there are reference markets that work for us. You know, uh, most of Europe, the US, the UK, outside those markets, it's a bit harder to know whether a format will travel. But, you know, we, we, can, we can all look at the success of, you know, the South Korean shows that, that have been remarkably successful. I, mean, I remember the first time, you know, I saw The Masked Singer and I sort of went, oh, really? Uh, yet, yet, you know, it's, it's not on my network, but I'd love to have it on my network. So, no, we're very happy to work with broadcasters uh, in individual territories and then potentially uh, take that format out to a local producer and work with them in that way. As countries like the US, the UK and Australia emerge from yep. the pandemic, I think you're hoping that all the money and time spent on developing new shows will result in an outpouring of exciting new ideas for programs and formats? Yes. Oh, we, we, our hope is that there has been a great flowering in the desert of the pandemic. Now, the reality for, for all of us is uh, production has been constrained. Uh, and, you know, I don't think we've seen those big formats come through like, uh, you know, like the voice that kind of changed things. Uh, what is the next, what are our next big formats? I think the really exciting thing for us is Free-to-air television at the moment is about creating those, as I said, big uh, programming brands that sit across multiple platforms. Uh, and, and I think our very fervent hope is that uh, everyone spent their pandemic time wisely coming up with great new ideas because, you know, we're certainly in the market for that and we're in the market for that now. And, you know, we're working on a lot of things here and we've got a few things in gestation. But, you know, given that we haven't been a MIP for two years and we really haven't seen sort of the great flowering of this time, I, I think there's a there's certainly a real opportunity here now for big, fresh ideas. And by big, I mean big. Uh, How is the current uh, COVID-19 lockdown in Greater Sydney, parts of New South Wales and other parts of the country How's that affecting your productions? We're pretty lucky. We've managed. It, the lockdown happened to happen to fall in a hole in production. I've got like six shows in post production, all furiously coming off the presses at the moment. But but this was genuinely more luck than good management. We we the the two week lockdown we currently find ourselves in falls in the middle of a production hiatus. Uh, but if it goes on much longer, then it will affect two or three of my my significant shows. So fingers crossed, uh, we get out of this and get out the other side. Yeah, one of the shows you're talking about is the hundred, the new panel show yep. hosted by Andy Lee. That's going to go soon. Yep, that's 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 almost going into production. So uh, yes, sets are being built, and um, we we've got a bit of movement with that. But but in the end, that will be at its core a topical panel show. So it's got to happen pretty close to TX. Um, so, you know, the reality is if we can't make it, then we just simply, we're, we're going to have to move it because what, it's not one of those things that we can create, put in the can. Yeah. And you're hoping to shoot Love Island Australia in Queensland, uh, border closures permitting? We are. We are going to Queensland, border closures permitting, but that's 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 our plan at the moment. The the, the joy, as everyone knows, with these with these shows, as um, I think Enda Shine discovered with Big Brother here in Sydney, is that uh, they happen in a bubble, which rather lends itself to the current circumstances. But yeah, look, I think I think we'll get Love Island away. I, I'm I'm hoping, fingers crossed, the fair wind behind us uh, pretty seamlessly. I don't think Nine has changed its approach to uh, commissioning local content since the federal government's media reforms, which uh, scrapped the local drama, children's and documentary subquotas. So your business as usual in terms of what you want. We are. I mean, you know, the reality for, I mean, I won't bang on about this because it's very specific to this market, but the reality with children's was that the, the amounts of children we were commissioning just weren't being watched on commercial terrestrial free-to-air. So that certainly helped us. Uh, no, documentary and drama are still very much part of our output. Um, uh, Saturday on Saturday, I went to a co-production that we did with the BBC and Netflix, uh, David Attenborough's Life in Colour. Uh, we're still the home of Attenborough in this market. Um, uh, you know, we've just finished five seasons of Doctor Doctor, 
which I think was a very, very successful local drama. And we we remain committed to local drama. So look, the 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 changes of legislation in this market have helped us deal with the fact that audiences are moving around and that costs are increasing simply because we've got so many more people playing in this market and competing for crew and competing for creatives. Uh, but no, our commissioning strategy broadly remains unchanged. You're quite right, Tom. So the increase in the producer offset from 20% to 30% will make it easier to finance uh, dramas? Uh, it'll make it easier to finance dramas, but to be honest with you, and and you'll, you'll hear this from everyone, the costs in this marketplace have gone up to such an extent because we're not only competing with a lot of the US streamers coming here to make shows, but we're competing with a lot of our talent going to the US to make shows. So the the stark reality of drama production and to an extent non-scripted production in this market is costs are going up because we have a limited talent pool and more and more people competing for that limited talent pool. You mentioned uh, Dr. Doctor, which just finished after, as you said, five very successful uh, series. Uh, how's the hunt going for another another big local drama? Good. We have several things in development. Uh, uh, you know, we, we, we've been really lucky. We've had five seasons of House Husbands, four seasons of Love Child, five seasons of Doctor Doctor. So, you know, that, that doesn't dominate our thinking. Can we get five seasons out of something? We, we, we really do look for things that will grab an audience in a terrestrial space. You know, the great... The great um, uh, juggling act that all free-to-airs face is when you're competing with streamers for drama and like us, you're commercial, so you have, you've got ads in the middle of your dramas, how, how do you find a space for drama uh, in that world? And I think that what we're looking for are things that, you know, big, universal, noisy themes that genuinely speak to uh, a free-to-air audience that, that centre around really Australian stories. Playmaker Media's Amazing Grace, set in a major hospital's birthing centre, mm-hmm. has been the top new Australian drama of the year so far. Are you yeah. talking about a renewal? We're very happy with that. We're, and look, we're talking to them about, about potentially going again. So we are in conversations with Playmaker. Okay. So what's your outlook for the rest of the year? Um, no doubt uh, uh, pinned to an extent on season 17 of The Block. <laughs> look, the reality is this, um, and this is the great imponderable I think probably in world media at the moment, what's going to happen with the Olympics? Yeah. You know, I think at this point we can all agree they're probably going to go ahead, although God knows if there's a massive outbreak, who knows what will happen. What will an Olympics be like without crowds? Because that's what we're now talking about. Um, so there's a bit of a, there's a big question around what will happen during the Olympics. Um, you know, I don't think, n- normally what happens during the Olympics is all the other networks in this territory tend to run dead. I don't think any of us are going to run dead this year. I think we'll all have alternative programming. And then, yes, I think you're, you're exactly right, Don. We come out of the Olympics uh, into season 17 of our great reality stalwart, The Block. Uh, this year we're in a cul-de-sac. We're, we're renovating in the, house, the houses in a cul-de-sac, uh, which gives it a completely different feel. Um, uh, yeah, look, it's a, look, I've seen up to episode, what, 26 now. Um, it's a really, really good season. And, you know, the thing, the, when you're dealing with a, pro- with a property that's 17 seasons old, that's our best uh, integration property. So, you know, we can, we can integrate all sorts of sponsors into it in a way that makes absolute sense to the audience. You've just got to keep reinventing it and keeping it fresh. Look, I think it's a really good season, but you know we're up against we're we're in a busy market. You know we'll up we'll be up against Survivor on Channel Ten. We'll be up against uh, The Voice on on Channel Seven. You know, um, three big commercial uh, broadcast free to air broadcasters in a market where we've got all the biggest streamers and a big streamer of our own. It's a it's a cluttered old it's a cluttered old seven thirty in anyone's life. Great for viewers though. <laughs> So um, your reboot of uh, Beauty and the Geek from Endemol Shine, uh, a format mm-hmm. which last aired on uh, Channel 7 uh, in 2014, that uh, premieres this Sunday. What can viewers expect? Um, I think the whole thing is based on it. Look, I, I was watching uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, on his uh, hydrofoil board um, uh, with an American flag on July 4, and, and it did very clearly... Uh, make it absolutely manifest to me the geeks have inherited the earth. So our very clear view was, <laughs> uh, uh, can we do a new version of Beauty and the Geek where where, where the geeks aren't quite the um, sort of bedraggled people who've been, who've come blinking into the light out of, out of their, 
you know, out of their bedroom in their underpants. And actually, I think this year's Beauty and the Geek is lovely. It, it's The show at its core is about two worlds colliding. It's about can opposites attract. It's a much less, it's a much less, less laugh at the, the dumb beauties and marvel at how socially inadequate the geeks are. It's much more about putting these two worlds together and seeing what happens. I think it's a much it's a much kinder version of the show, uh, but you know it's still got all the drama, uh, and it's it's been I'm very proud of it actually. I think I think Enamel Shine uh, have done a really really beautiful job. It's really lovely storytelling. I think you get a real insight into worlds you never normally see, um, and and genuinely when you bring these two groups together and they end up helping each other, and and you know the beauties with their their kind of social ability and their confidence meet a whole lot of guys who have superpowers, who are brilliant musicians or brilliant mathematicians or brilliant game players. Uh, and you put those two things together, uh, what we've ended up with is something really interesting. Okay. In the factual domain, ITV Studios Australia is making for you Australia Behind Bars, which goes uh, into three correctional facilities, mm-hmm. both male and female. Uh, how's that looking? Good, really good. I just uh, had a look at episode three this morning, um, stuff you never see, you know, stuff you never see. Episode three is all about a massive riot, one of the biggest riots ever in the Australian correctional system that no one knew about. That was uh, it's only this is the first time you'll ever see it, uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's really powerful stuff. And it also deals with that moment where you know the regular people spend that that first moment when they go into prison and they suddenly understand that they're in this completely different world and exploring that whole thing. It uh, it's a real it's 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 nicely made, but it's really powerful, good old fashioned observational documentary. I, I think it'll be a really powerful series. Eureka Productions is making for you the parent jury, which sees uh, parents, including single gay people of colour, uh, trying to prove that they, they their parenting styles are the best. Uh, Joe Frost from Super Nanny was originally supposed to be the, the host presenter, but, of course, she couldn't enter the country. So how have you repositioned that? Poor parental guidance these days, <laughs> Don. Um uh, PG, you know, I think we're all familiar with the term parental guidance recommended. Um, it, oh, look, we, basically, we've got we've got the host of our, our morning show, uh, Ali Langdon, and Justin Coulson, who is our in this market uh, our premier parenting expert. And we brought together parenting styles from right around the country and sort of put them through a series of challenges to see which are the most resilient, which are which can sort of withstand all those challenges we face, doing things we haven't done before, uh, you know, uh, hosting parties, going camping, um, going out to eat in a posh restaurant. When you put each of those parenting styles from tiger parenting, helicopter parenting, free-range parenting, um, uh, attachment parenting, uh, uh, homeschoolers, when you put them all in the same environment, what does that look like and how do those kids and how do the parents react? I think we've got a show that'll get all of Australia talking, and I think we've got a show where people will have very, very clear views on uh, which parenting styles work the best. The way the show works is the parents themselves work, vote on the, sh- the parenting styles they like the best, and we do have a winner, which I think will surprise everyone. Uh, no hints? None. <laughs> Actually, well, well, all I will say is that by the time we get down to the pointy end, it's the two polar opposites of parenting that, that find themselves sort of competing for, for, for first place. So what other shows upcoming would you like to highlight? Um, uh, look, I think, I think parental guidance is, is really important to us. I've got, I've got one show that I can't talk about, Don, in development, which we're, 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 we'll have at the end of the year, which I, I'm, I'm really excited about because I think we can turn that into a, an ongoing series. Um, uh, I think Married at First Sight uh, for, for next season will be, uh, we've just got an amazing cast, which we're casting for at the moment. Um, uh, I think Lego Masters 2 is, is about to have a bit of a renaissance, so we're very excited about that. Um, look, it's about sticking to our core shows. I think we're still in that position where we're looking for what are the next big 7.30 strips in this market. I'm sure your audience will know that we are a market dominated by strips. What is the next big thing for here? And, and I think we're very much on the lookout for what that, that thing is. I hope that will emerge in the next few months as uh, projects uh, start being pitched by international uh, distributors and producers and broadcasters. Yeah. Look, as vaccine rates go up, as, as Boris brings the UK out of lockdown, as as American vac- vaccination rates um, get to the same position, and and the and the you know the big US 
studios start producing again. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what comes out of that. Simon Cowell's got a new show, you know. Um, uh, uh, I think things, you know, some of the existing shows are due for a reboot. Let's see where they go. Um, yeah, I think I, th- these should be exciting times. So you're very bullish still about the future of commercial free-to-air TV um, as the best way to uh, to aggregate audiences? Yes. I, look, I think we've got... I think free-to-air always has a place. Uh, and I think what, what good free-to-air networks will do is adapt their output to talk to their audience where they can find it. You know, we're, we're really lucky. You know, we've got, a, we've got the biggest local... A locally based streamer in this market, you know. Um, so where else in Stan, where that works really well is, you know, doing the rugby with Stan. You know, a component of it is on free to air, and a component of it is on is on the streamer, and that works really, really well because we're we're almost a market. We're not. We're almost. We're absolutely a marketing mouthpiece for that content, and then the depth of content sits over there. So, if you can find that symbiosis, uh, I think there's a real role for free to air television. Uh, plus, plus we have multi channels in this market. So you know, having having uh, things like uh, and se- we do several versions of this in this market. The main show on the main channel, uh, and then the kind of the, the catch up show. So we've done it with Married at First Sight. Um, we've done it with um, we've done it with Love Island. So having secondary shows on secondary channels because both those shows are on our main channel. Uh, so you know. Provided you can create an environment and get the right number of people consuming on the platform where you can monetize it, um, and you've gee, you've got to be smart about it. You've really got to be smart in terms of the cost of content creation and the likely return on the the delivery platform that you have in mind. But if you get that right, yeah, there's a massive role for free to air television. Executives from a number of leading distributors discuss changes to their business models and trends, including how the current boom in international production in Australia is increasingly opening up the country to the global market. Escape Media Managing Director Natalie Lawley, Flame Distribution Content Sales and Acquisitions Director Fiona Gilroy, LGI Media Founder and Chief Executive Na Yuan Chow, and Beyond Rights Australia, New Zealand and Asia Executive Vice President of Sales Joanne Azupadi spoke to Nico Franks. Let's set the scene. You're all competing with global players, big and small, and looking to sell to broadcasters and streaming platforms, both in Australia and the world over. In our pre-chats, you all mentioned consolidation and um, this shift towards streaming that we're seeing that's only been accelerated since the pandemic. I think a good place to start would be to chat about how you're coping, I suppose, with this shift and the gradual closure of linear pay TV channels. So, Joanne, let's kick off with you. To date, our business seems to be faring quite well and I feel that we we don't quite know yet um, with for example Disney have just closed 18 channels or they're, they're going to be closing in October 18 channels in Asia and I'm not sure yet whether what does that mean for all the content that we used to place with you know like Nat Geo and Fox channels will there still be the same appetite for the same type of content now that it's all moving to online um, uh, so I, I feel that there's still some clarity there. I, I think that um, my colleagues within Beyond could say uh, similar things in terms of other markets where um, there's still some clarity coming as to the amount of content that the online services will continue to acquire. And also it does seem like another element of consolidation with online is that with these vast kind of SVOD libraries, it's harder to find shows you, you know the, the the viewer's got to make more of an effort rather than having it all nicely curated and promoted on on linear and so I think one one thing that the online shift has done is that and this is aside from the pandemic is that you know the the streamers look for shows that that are going to stand out and so they're, they're louder and noisier and yeah I mean uh, the other element of consolidation that's been happening for a number of years is the consolidation 
evolution of companies as they um, merge and get ready to compete with the streamers. And so what you're finding is with these mergers, they are becoming more self-sufficient in some ways because they are are in merging, having this flow of content in genres that maybe they didn't necessarily have before. The Discovery and the Scripps merger um, a few years ago um, meant that Discovery does buy less um, for its linear channels, you know, in in any case. So the consolidation has been happening for a number of years. And now, Anne, how are you finding it in terms of the opportunities being thrown up by these new streamers versus the decline of, of linear pay and, and also declining license fees, which was something you all mentioned mm. um, is happening? Yeah. Well, I think just echo- echoing firstly what Joanne said is um, I think with the streamers, they are looking for something that's different. I mean, they are trying to differentiate themselves to what that you could typically find on pay TV. So if it is a premium subscription service, they want a premium show, whereas an AVOD model is more willing to test the waters and take on older content as well. So I think it really depends on who you're selling to in the um, streaming space. With pay TV, I don't think there's a lot that's changed. It's mainly the license fees are either a little bit lower or they ask for a lot more rights compared to what they used to. We do, you know, in a lot of, for us, it's a lot of the specialist factual space. So I think what the expectation now, especially with consolidation, is program quality as well. I think there is more of a hunger for higher quality content in order for it to cut through. Uh, you know, I think series is coming back um, in a big way. And I think this consolidation and reduction in budgets has really just made it more competitive at the high end where they will spend the money if you've got the right content. But in the middle or the low end, it, it's harder to sell unless you're going to package it up in some sort of volume deal with both pay TV and um, even emerging and new streaming channels that are launching as well. Fiona, how do you approach it? You know, in terms of, you know, it's, it's very unlikely we're going to see any more pay TV channels launching now. So is it more just kind of shifting in terms of the way you do deals and re- reinterpreting what your buyer looks like now? Look, I think it's it's very early days and it's very fluid at the moment. So it's a little bit hard to be black and white about it. I, I think the consolidations were inevitable. The market had become very fragmented and it was just hard to see how the commercial model was going to work for so many different, you know, places to go to find content. I, I think the biggest thing is what um, Joe and Noanne were mentioning with um, declining licence fees. I think that's going to make content harder to fund and I think it's going, there's going to be a real push for, probably a push for co-productions at that sort of middle and bottom, bottom range of um, production, which actually makes the distributors uh, sort of more important in a way because they're in a place where they can help broker those deals for producers and bring in other parties. So look, it's an interesting space. I also do feel that there are lots of things still emerging. So there's, unlike um, Blue Ant last week, I think, announced that they were or, or have plans for some new fast channels. So so different um, services are opening up different opportunities, I think, as well as fast as things are consolidating, you know, there are other things opening up as well. Yeah, Natalie, I know when we spoke, you were talking about how getting in early is absolutely key now. So how does that actually work in in practice? I think for us, that's something that when we started the business, we wanted to be able to potentially at that time get in early for different reasons. And obviously, as the the markets kind of moved and changed quite significantly, we're now looking at a a model where, you know, getting in early not only supports and helps that project through, be it, you know, the commercial aspects of it or making sure that it's globally appealing. But obviously now, as Fiona quite rightly said, is the funding of it as well. And, you know, I, I do think that goes across from the high end right through down to the kind of like the more, you know, moderately financed projects. And I think for us, we're certainly seeing, I mean, we've never been busier in that sort of that side of the business for the last 18 months. We've just never been busier in it. And it's again, across all genres. But I do, I I do think obviously, we've still got quite a, a way to go. But I think one of the things that COVID has done in a very positive way has kind of, you know, it's kind of pressed the reset button for a number of people and for a number of channels. And so therefore, I think people have also had to, the, the, the you know, the bigger players as well have also had to look at what their offering is to the marketplace and how they distinguish that. And I actually think that buys in really strongly for the independent distributor as well, because the independent distributor offers the bigger players, the medium players and the smaller players, something as a point of difference 
being independent content. So it does stand out in style. It does stand out in story. It does have innovative ways of of coming to market. So I think that's really important. And I agree with Fiona. I I think our position in terms of, of a distributor will become more and more important as we go along. I know there's a lot of questions around the role of distributors in the press constantly, but I I just think as we go along, I think we can find our ways to become more important and and, and more useful as well. One show that caught my eye recently, so um, that was one of yours, um, Fiona's, the deal you put together, or at least to get the distribution rights to Life in Colour with David Attenborough. So that was jointly commissioned by Netflix, uh, the BBC in the UK, and Australia's Nine Network and the streamer Stan, which that's a show there that you know really encapsulates all the different kinds of buyers that are around at the moment. In terms of distributing a show like that, is there a lifespan in a show that has launched globally on Netflix, for example? It remains to be seen, I think. You know, when you're talking about Attenborough, it's, it's exceptional content. It doesn't necessarily follow the rules. I mean, mm. that deal in, in itself didn't really follow the rules. To, to have, you know, Netflix coming on board in that way, um, you know, pulling out Australia and, I mean, they've worked with the BBC before, obviously, but having the sort of the holdbacks on free and pay that Netflix allowed us with that series, you know, to go to market, you know, it was exceptional. I wouldn't expect to see that with any title. But I I think um, leaving Attenborough aside with other content, I think there is some sense with some of the broadcasters that having had it out on Netflix means that their audience will have seen it. But, um, you know, it's not always the case. It will depend entirely on the content, I think, really. Yeah, Attenborough is something of a unicorn, isn't he? He, You know, anything he's attached to is kind of in its own separate category. Absolutely, absolutely. So how are you finding in terms of trying to replicate, you know, a scenario like that in terms of your conversations with producers and buyers and windowing? Are you seeing an openness to deals that are maybe not exactly like that, but do at least allow for a bit of wriggle room for different players to maybe window in one territory and then defer to another in another territory? I think increasingly that's the case because no single platform, again, for that kind of middle and bottom end of the the productions that we're seeing, no single platform are going to fund them. So a a single commission is just so rare these days, something that will be fully funded by a single broadcaster or platform. So I think that they've had to realise that there are, you know, they have to make concessions in other territories or with other rights so that things can just get funded and get made. And I think there are some synchronicities between various um, broadcasters and platforms too. I mean, you often see, you know, ZDF Arte working with the ABC or SBS on content, you know, in Australia or Channel 5 and Discovery. We've had some projects where they've partnered up. So I think we'll probably, you know, that's definitely the case where um, broadcasters are just looking at more discreet rights and territories to try and help get things funded. And where does the responsibility lie at the moment in terms of finding those bedfellows? Is it on the producer or is is it more and more on the distributor? Well, I think the producers are going to have to rely more and more on the distributor because the the distributor is the one that has more contacts with both, um, you know, potential co-production partners. That Attenborough deal was really a co-production between the UK and Australia and that's how a lot of those um, players were brought in or with the actual buyer at the end of the day, the commissioner. So that, the, again, as Natalie was saying, the distributor is really important in that mix. And Noanne, are you finding that to, in terms of the global, the globalisation, I suppose, of the industry, um, more and more partners kind of finding a bit of um, synchronicity, as Fiona was saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, we've been doing, um, putting together deals with producers for a number of years now. Um, just to give you an example, um, it was the recent one that we did in the blue chip wildlife space it was a production company based out of asia who got a theatrical uh, release in china so the money came from china but lgi put together the rest of the financing so we've got france television on board svt nhk and smithsonian so we helped basically put together the remaining of that budget and um and so and we're doing the same with another big civilization project from another um producer in canada where um, nova's on board we've got Arte on board and SVT on board and so and so again it's we've been doing this for quite a quite a while um, and just playing to our strengths and I think what we offer producers is apart from their local broadcaster or any funds that they can access um, locally 
um, you know, we then will help them go out and pre-sell or co-produce, have that project co-produce. And we've been quite successful with that. And we're starting to push more into that space because I think as everybody understands here as an independent um, distributor, I think what we can offer is that intel, um, but also those relationships to be able to raise financing for projects um, that produce need. Yeah. And I suppose nimbleness is also a a benefit to to being a small to medium-sized distributor as well. Yeah, totally. Senior drama executives discuss navigating the challenges and opportunities of a constantly evolving global industry and how they're managing and evolving business models against a landscape of new streamers and increased competition. Roadshow Rough Diamond founder and producer Dan Edwards, Jungle Entertainment partner and chief operating officer Chloe Ricard, Lingo Pictures managing director Helen Bowden, Fremantle Asia Pacific chief executive Chris Oliver-Taylor and Matchbox Pictures managing director Alistair McKinnon spoke to Sophia Zaccario. Um, So I'm just going to throw open a question to all the panel um, first up. So who are the key players in this content boom and what are some of the trends we're seeing in the type of content that's being made? Does anyone want to have a go throwing their hat in the ring for that first one? (laughs) I will. I'll start off. (laughs) Good on you. Yeah. So from an Australian perspective, I think... um, one of the biggest shifts is the global streamers entering the Australian market. So the likes of Netflix, Amazon and Paramount Plus, I think they've um, thrown a bunch of new opportunities and trends up. Um, We're also seeing an increased interest from the US studios. So we're partnering with many US studios across many of our projects in development and production at the moment. Um, And uh, we're also seeing the likes of some of the US cables like... um, FX and AMC, um, you know, buying direct from the Australian market. Well, Jungle had a um, experience with FX with Mister In Between, so yeah. So um, we sold FX. Uh, so we sold Mister In Between to FX. Um, it started off as an FX Australia production, but FX in the US picked it up, and it's just launched its third season over there now. Great. And was that a good experience? Did you find working directly with a US network like that a valuable yeah, experience? Or yeah. It was it was, it was amazing. Um, their creative input was excellent and just really elevating the project to its full potential, I think, was was really great. Okay. Anyone, anyone else want to have a go at answering that open question? What, what are the, some of the trends we're seeing in genre or types of content that's being made, in particular in the drama space? Any particular trends? Mayor well, of Easttown? I, <laughs> I think trends is something that is, I mean, by definition, is something that just changes so regularly and frequently that by the time you identify one it's already moved on and there's and there's a new thing coming through and I think something that um, certainly at Matchbox we've always done is not tried to chase trends but actually just pursue projects that you have you know a particular passion for or that spark a fire for somebody creatively within the business because oftentimes you'll be being told that nobody is looking for you know superhero series or whatever and then by the time you know you kind of have finished your development of it actually everyone's looking for it and you're in the right place at the right time so i think i think chasing trends is um for us anyway has not been something that uh is really that fruitful i I think that's totally spot on the the trend may be around we're all on the same path aren't we so i think what's changed in the last few years is everyone is now and maybe zoom is helping as well everyone either is expected to bring international money to the table that used to be a distribution advance only often now certainly i think i'm finding i'm sure i'm not alone that it's a pre-sale maybe plus an advance which is making it doubly hard that trend seems to be sneaking in that the local money to some degree but we need to almost double dip internationally and i think that's that's a worrying trend to some degree because i wonder how sustainable it is maybe it is but it's you know some shows are harder to finance than others so that's something we're, we're noticing quite a bit yes yeah, yeah, escalating right. budgets is definitely a trend i think um that, <clears> that's something it's just harder to finance. I mean, to Chris's point, which is absolutely right, but I think it's harder and harder to finance things in general, and um, particularly locally. I think it's it's getting it's getting tougher and tougher. That's a trend for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, the changes in our local content rules, you know, changed that landscape overnight, really. So the halving of the content quota meant suddenly those um, companies that are bound by that quota, you know, had half the commitment they previously had, and that so that left all the producers in the role of, as Chris says, going out and getting 
pre-sales as well as sales mm. advances. As a uh, independent company, we find there is great hunger for product, you know, for projects, for good projects, projects that people believe will be well made. Um, so that's the upside. You know, that, that there's just an enormous demand for these services that are flying all over the world. Great. Um, so Chris, first question to you. So what's been the impact of the streamers? Do you think in upending the traditional distribution model? So just going off what you were saying before about, um, I mean, Helen's making the point about the quotas, but also the streamers coming in, how's that changed the landscape in terms of financing a project? Look, I think, do you mean locally or do you mean broadly, broader than that in Australia? Uh, locally and internationally, I think, yeah. Uh, look, I think it's done a few things. I think that very quickly, you know, probably since the start of the pandemic and now we're towards the end of it, Netflix have turned up and really started commissioning quite aggressively locally. Amazon have, you know, revealed a couple of slates and, and others too. That's that's reasonably quick. I think what that's done is probably put many distributors, uh, make, making them think twice about how do they invest their money, where do they sell the shows if it's not to a streamer. And I think we're seeing a split in the market. We're seeing an SVOD market and a non-SVOD market. And I think Helen's spot on. What that does is generate lots of content Unfortunately, it gives us challenges on different sides. So it gives you challenges on, you know, do you want to sell Nesfold and give away all the rights day one? Do you want to work a distribution model and maybe see some back end? Um, as Alice has said, it's harder to finance now than certainly I've ever experienced it. So sometimes taking the bigger check earlier mm. is better than waiting for the longer, you know, piecemeal finance plan that might be better off for you financially later on. That's, that to me is reasonably new. I, I think before that we were following a, you know, two, three years ago, we were still following a traditional financing model with maybe a Netflix or an Amazon jumping on the back through the distribution advance. Now we're seeing them saying, well, we're not going to work with the ABC, say Netflix or Amazon, we want the show exclusively. Um, and so we're now seeing that split between linear TV, that's the right phrase still, domestic TV, I guess, and SVOD TV. And I think that split's happened, generated more content, but I still think we're in a, in a, in a very much of a learning phase as an industry and a sector in Australia about what how that will shake itself down. So Helen, anyway, it's actually related to that. So what are the new opportunities for producers and for audiences? Like it, are you finding as an independent producer, you're finding new ways to reach those audiences that were didn't exist before? I think I think there's just a, an absolute boom in the number of platforms and we're just seeing it, you know, grow and grow at the moment. That may not continue in quite the same way, but you know, you've got Acorn and Apple and Amazon and you know all the A's right through to TikTok, you know, you've got a lot of platforms looking for shows and in, you know, commissioning shows, buying existing shows, all of that sort of thing. So there's just no doubt that there's a huge range of customers, if you like, and, you know, outlets for, for the audience. Um, are some stories getting lost in that? You know, possibly, possibly, but in a way, not as much as you would think. I mean, I think what's really interesting is, you know, again, like, lots of things to do with the environment we're in there's a big divide between the things that people really want to watch and the things that they don't care enough about so there's sort of no room anymore for for you know that middle ground mm. uh, and you either make something really good that people want to watch or or you find yourself you know in the backwater where where nobody's watching it and I guess what's um what's a positive thing is that the strongest thing in this environment for the audiences as far as I can see is word of mouth because there are so many platforms, people are using word of mouth to find out what to watch. And I just spent an accidental year in Aotearoa, New Zealand, thanks to the pandemic. And I discovered that there on the farm, you know, members of my family, the same thing, you know, they knew about the Queen's Gambit before I did. And they're, you know, popping their head into the farmhouse and saying to me and my 92-year-old mother, have you seen this? I think you'd like it. Apparently it's great, you know. So that kind of word of mouth, thing is just going everywhere and and the same in reverse when something is perhaps a second series and people don't think it's as good as the first one or whatever so you know I think it's it's very interesting times in that in that way and there's you know the types of things that are being made into tv shows whether they're dramas or comedies or other things it's just astonishingly wide now compared with even 10 years ago you know people will look at an adaptation of a book that you know years ago you would have thought well you know that's a great book but 
how would you make that into TV? And the next thing, it's a fabulous TV show. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting time. Right. Um, Alistair, so how, does it, does this kind of new world change the way you, the deals are done? Like your experience at Matchbox, how have you, how are these new deals working? Um, you've done a lot of quite, you know, clickbait, stateless, um, you know, like you've, you've commissioned, gotten shows commissioned through the streamers. So how how's it changed the way the deals have done and for your company and is it sustainable? Um, well, I, th- I mean, I think Chris sort of um, covered this earlier when he was talking about um, the splits between, you know, SVOD and domestic and whether you do traditional financing model with DAs and looking for longer term back end or you're taking a, a check up front and giving away more rights. And I think that kind of is the division. I think the, the point is that there are now many more ways to finance and structure a deal than there was previously. And whereas there was a fixed model for many years, I think particularly in Australia about how something was done, you could almost, you know, calculate that in your head in about 10 seconds um, as soon as you knew what sort of numbers you were dealing with. And now there's a lot of negotiation. I think there's um, a lot more time and effort putting into what you can and can't live with. And I think it shifts depending on the type of the show, the scale of the show, um, whether you think, whether it's a limited series or a returning series, all of those factors then come into the sort of deal that you're prepared to make um, and, and how you calculate what the potential upside is versus what you can get in your pocket immediately. So I would say it's just the diversity of deals and the diversity of deal making has gone up exponentially. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas you know, even four or five years ago, there was probably about three different ways to skin it. Now there's, you know, so many, many more. And it's really comes down to the type of content um, that you're dealing with. And also in some cases, probably just opportunity. So there might be a particular show that, you know, you've only got one path to go down or it's a particular specific piece of um, style or genre. So you've only got one opportunity and so you'll make the deal work, whatever it is. And then sometimes you might find yourself in the fortunate position of being in a bidding war for something and in which case you have a lot more leverage and you can get, you know, a deal that's much more favourable than you normally would. So, yeah, I just say there's a huge diversity of the deals that are being done. So what's the difference between working with a local broadcaster or a local platform and an international platform? Like creatively, like how, how you what's the what, what are the kind of key differences that you're finding? Sure. Um, I, I guess I'll, I'll talk to um, how we're shaping our development slate. Uh in regards to the, the differences in the market. But, but for us, all our commissions um, since we've um, been running Rough Diamond have been with local players. Um, and, you know, as Alistair just talked to, the model is fairly consistent it, it, in terms of where the majority of commissions are coming from, be it the SPOD players or ABC, SBS and Foxtel. Uh, you know, there's a significant portion of the, the finance plan is international. Um, the, the only difference is how big the budget is. And, and then that, that depends on the show. And, and you, you've, you've kind of got to pick that range carefully because, um, you know, the outlook in terms of the longevity of the show, uh, is it going to be a, re- a renewed series? How much uh, is your international partner going to back it versus particularly as an independent, um, not being an in-house production company? So um, so all of that stuff in terms of, you know, the, the, the free-to-air shows that we've made, um, we've been lucky enough to, to sell those quite well, uh, find a, one good premium sale internationally that's that's set us up to renew those those shows. And I just wanted to, to kind of make that point that um, in terms of the, the gamut of um, commissioners, you know, um, foreigners and, and, and locals, um, still internationally, uh, the, the free-to-air market is quite robust. Um, in the UK last year, it was 11 out of the top 20 shows were scripted shows. In, in the US, 19 out of the top 30 were scripted shows. And I, I guess a big portion of those were um, were returning series. Um, but it just it just goes to show that while that, you know, the whole all the new entrants are um, obviously uh, taking a lot of the audience from the, our traditional commissioners. Um, you know, the rest of the English-speaking world still has a very significant business on free. Um, but, but again, I can only speak for us. When we've been um, creatively, um, you know, engaged with Stan or ABC and, and, and Channel 7 on Australian Gangster, um, the advantage has been 
you know, they've had local uh, executives based here in Australia that, that we're familiar with. And I think that um, that's been the edge in terms of, you know, navigating notes and, and getting on the same page and understanding the Australian tone and sensibility and, and all of that stuff that I think is very possible with um, with with all the players. Um, but, but that's been definitely an opportunity for us. And um, we've been fortunate enough on, on, on those few shows to um, to also have the, the, the international side of things you know, stack up. But th- that, that said, obviously, we'd love um, uh, to, to work more with the big international streamers. And and I think Chris spoke to it b- before. It's it's a very different model. Um, if they're taking the rest of the world, you, you, you're you're making it for fees, and you want to make something good. So um, so I think you know it it is it's it's quite stark the the opportunities between the between the two. And should you know the the, the quotas become a, a a law, get get uh, ratified into law. Um, um, you know, you'd hope that there'll be more and more Australian content commissioned from from Australia, um, and you know the opportunities will continue to grow. Leading creators and producers discussed how First Nations drama in Australia is developing beyond local storytelling to become genre-driven global content, shining a light on emerging talent from often underrepresented backgrounds and breaking down barriers internationally. Actor Deborah Mailman, Blackfella Films producer and managing director Darren Dale and Bunya Productions producer Penny Smalakum spoke to writer, academic and filmmaker Larissa Berendt about these issues and series including Redfern, Mystery Road and Total Control. So Deborah, I'm going to start with you. I just wanted to ask you, what do you love about the character of Alex Irving? And from you, for you in bringing her to life, what do you think has made her iconic and groundbreaking? Um, what I love about the role of Alex Irving is I think she brings a quite a unique voice to the screen. Um, we often uh, don't have a lot of political drama uh, within our industry and to create a show completely from a First Nations female point of view is actually really exciting and very unique. Um, and, and and within that, um, you know, the writers have done such a fabulous job of creating a really complex role um, that as an actor, you know, you can only dream of. And she's everything you want in a character. She's unhinged. Um, she has an incredibly strong moral compass. She's a fighter. She's a survivor. And um, and every shades of grey in between that. So I think for me, especially though, just being in a in a leading role within such a fierce and fabulous female character for me is is what I love about her. And Darren, tell us about how you knew when the story came to you that this was something you really wanted to get behind. I mentioned a little bit of the sort of range of stories you've looked at and, you know, you've done some of the really iconic stories like Marbo. Um, I just was wondering if you could share with us, be you, what was it about the idea of total control that meant that you really wanted to get behind it and saw it also as, as something that was going to be really groundbreaking? Um, yeah, thanks, Marissa, for the question. Um, I think it was a sort of crucible, really, of like Penny in her former role at Screen Australia um, wanting to see a show about a strong character, a female character. And we've worked with Deb on so many productions now that how do we create a fabulous role for her and also make a story that was contemporary, that spoke to issues that we're dealing with, not only Indigenous people, but women are dealing with in politics. And I guess we just thought, Australia hasn't made those great shows like The West Wing or Veep or, you know, shows where there are women um, fully in control, fully at the height of their powers and, you know, being complex. Normally those roles are given to men and men affect things that happen to women. But this story was spearheaded by two wonderful actors, Deborah Marlon and Rachel Griffiths. And I think, you know, you knew that the idea was exciting when you had both of those actresses in your mind. And so really the drama just had to live up to their extraordinary talent in a way. But Penny was really instrumental in really wanting us to be bold, wanting something that reached for some operatic tone, something that was completely primetime television. Um, and I guess we were fearless in just making something with her support that we think, we thought would connect with an audience in a big way. And look, we're lucky it did. You know, the ABC numbers on this show when it premiered were huge. Their catch-up figures on demand were massive. Um, yeah, and so I think it really hit a nerve with women especially. And that 
ABC audience, um, a female on screen exploring complexity, as Deb says, I think it was just a great canvas that we haven't seen. And I think that's what all drama makers are trying to do is to explore new territory. And certainly this show really explored new territory. Yeah, no, it's great. And and of course, it's it, it really highlights people sometimes come with an expectation about what a First Nations story is going to be. And it just shows that actually these stories can be anywhere. But it feels like a really good moment to bring you in, Penny, because obviously, as Darren says, you were sort of instrumental from where you were as part of the major funding agency. I was wondering if you could tell us what you what 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 you saw as groundbreaking about the series, and perhaps a little bit more than that, how you see it as reflective of how First Nations storytelling has evolved over the last sort of six years. Um, look, well, I think um, I think Darren's being very very kind as usual. Um, look, I think that I was just lucky enough to come on this journey with Blackfella Films and with Darren um, and the rest of the team with Deb and with Rachel um, and, you know, uh, Rachel Perkins directing the first series and now we've got a fantastic second series being directed by Wayne Blair. So it's been a privilege to come on this journey. But, I mean, certainly I think for me personally what resonated most about this series and what I loved most from the very uh, gem of the idea of a First Nations person trying to make it in, you know, um, in, in the highest government of, you know, in Australia, in the, you know, of all of the lands in Australia, was that um, can Indigenous people make it in essentially white institutions that have uh, historically been created to keep us out? Um, and what happens to a character when you are trying to create change in those kind of institutions. And I think that was very much at the heart of it um, in terms of a Deb's character journey, you know, what do you have to give up in order to create change and um, what are those kind of pressures on a character? And, um, you know, for Alex Irvin, Irvine, our, our main character in this series, I think that the writers, um, you know, uh, and Rachel Griffiths and Darren as EPs and, and Stu Page and Deb, I think they elevated this series far beyond anything that I expected and I already knew it was going to be fantastic, but it went above and beyond um, and it was certainly, I think it's uh, a real testament to their talents and the collaborative effort and work that was done to bring together the best writers um, working with the best producing team at Blackfellow Films and the best uh, the best actors to come on board, that um, it did really elevated that and I think that it gave Australian audiences and international audiences just a real insight into the everyday pressures that First Nations women do every day, to, one, to survive, and then two, to try and create change and try and make things better in what are basic human asks and, you know, the human and the humanity of trying to create that kind of change. So certainly I think that is why the series is most powerful for me. Um, and as an Aboriginal woman, um, you know, Deb's character is uh, continually referred to as a black bitch throughout the series. And I think that really resonated for many First Nations women, many women of colour, you know, no matter how hard you work and no matter what you try, there is so always someone at the end of the day that's going to refer to you as a black bitch until you become the black bitch. And then they don't like that either. So, you know, it, it's a bit of a, it was a, bit of a mixed bag, but you know, I think it was beautifully put together. And I think that also talks about, you know, the, the elevation of this kind of blue chip series for the ABC um, that it just became so personal, you know. I think that there were so many people that were brought into the writers' room um, and experts and people that worked in politics and, and people that had just been CEOs or had been, uh, you know, Indigenous women that had... Um, really, you know, worked their ass off to create change, change, but had been vilified in many different ways. And I think that kind of storytelling was was quite new and something that we haven't seen through the eyes of such a fabulous character, which Deb, you know, just uh, played so wonderfully and, and, and made her very own. 
it's a it's a great example too of how when you've got a story that will really resonate because of the truth and the authenticity that you speak of. Um, of course, Penny, that it's really reflective of what a lot of First Nations women are going through. But actually, the, it, the this old mantra of uh, broader Australian audiences aren't interested in Indigenous stories is actually a fallacy. As Darren says, it's been hugely successful and all brought to life by by Deb, who's absolutely a favourite with everyone. We all love to see ourselves in in you, Deb. So I was just actually going to ask you, since you obviously came onto, burst onto the screens in Radiance, but really trailblazed in The Secret Life of Us by being, you know, the, the first First Nations woman to have a recurring role on a, a, a show where the storyline was just about your life, not always about the stereotypical storyline. Um, it really did have a, a big impact. I was wondering if you could reflect how, from your perspective, you've seen the opportunities for First Nations actors change um, over the period that you've been in the industry because it's certainly opened up a lot since you you started out and were such a trailblazer in that way. Well, I, I guess I have to be thankful um, for uh, people like John Edwards and Amanda Higgs and uh, Imogen Banks who, you know, they took a chance on me of all the actors that they could have brought into playing firstly the role of Kelly in Secret Life of Us and then um, Cherie and Offspring, um, you know, it, I guess I've had the great fortune of working with um, and building relationship uh, with producers, you know, and, and I guess that's what I've done with Blackfellow Films and with Darren, with Rachel Perkins, and I established that relationship with John and, and Imogen to be able to get those opportunities. I mean, it's it's a lot of luck as well, you know, addition for both both those roles and thankfully they saw an opportunity for something different on screen and um, to have an Indigenous you know, actor within a mainstream commercial role was was a big risk for them and, and thankfully they, they took it. That's all for this episode. You can hear full versions of all those discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, which will return on Monday with more interviews. The podcast will be back next Friday and in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 